Designated Driver with Celestian. Today we're welcoming songwriter, musician and record producer Gordon Kennedy onto the show. Welcome, Gordon. How are you today? Alice, I'm doing just fantastic. Thank you very much. Wonderful. That's excellent to hear. And I'm doing all the better from hearing your cheery voice at the end of the line. (laughs) <laughs> well, it's, it's very kind of you to want to spend some time with me today. I look forward to this. Oh, it's our pleasure. And uh, are you in Nashville? Is that where we're speaking to you from? Yes, I'm just about 10 minutes south of Nashville. Okay, okay. And um, you mentioned to me sort of off the air, as it were. Um, so you're waiting basically at the moment for the green light for your Garth Brooks Stadium shows that you started in. It was 2019, wasn't it? So what was it like getting yeah. that call that it was cancelled until further notice you must have been so looking forward to that well i've known him since he kind of came to nashville and got his start in fact my brother brian actually hired him to come and sing demo sessions and i remember brian telling me this guy's going to be something you know and that was an understatement but so I've, i've known him over the years and participated in projects here and there with him through the years uh probably the most i would say notorious being the Chris Gaines um, record that he did, that project where he assumed the identity of, you know, an alter ego named Chris Gaines. And so I wrote and participated on that record. Uh, I had one song recorded. um, My first song recorded by him was on an album called Sevens. So it was just one of his, you know, normal albums that he had done years ago. And then from time to time through the years, I've, I've, counted up recently where he's recorded 15 of my songs and I've played on some projects here and there, done some live things with him here and there in the fall of 2018 though, is when he called and he had just finished doing three years of arena shows and said, Hey, would you want to come out with me for the next three years and do the stadium shows? And I said, well, let me think about that. Yes. And that, so I did the first year with him and then we did one show last year before all this covid stuff happened and had to you know take the pause and we're still waiting to go back at this point but yeah it's it's an amazing experience he is the best uh, there's nobody like that guy just if you ever get a chance to cross paths with him you will know what i'm talking about but to go and get to to do this with him is an adventure to say the least yeah i'll bet so are you staying in touch with him throughout you know the last year and everything do you keep in touch Yes. Um, yeah, we hear from him from time to time. He asked me to send songs from, you know, time to time as well. And, and in fact, he recorded a song of mine and Wayne Kirkpatrick's the back half of last year. And so I don't know what that will be released on and, and when. But I also got a call from his management a couple of weeks ago asking for publishing information on a song called Love Will Always Win because he's going to be doing that on the Ellen DeGeneres show um, that'll air this Friday. So, you know, keep crossing paths with him and business as usual has me, you know, kind of in touch with him from time to time. Mm, Okay. And I'm curious, do you have a sort of Garth Brooks WhatsApp group that you're all in as a band, or is it just a one-on-one sort of catch-up that you have every now and then? Well, we have our one-on-one things that we do, but if you can believe this or not, the band finds out where we're playing and when, just like everybody else who would be buying tickets, we have to go to the website. 
<laughs> so it's so, a surprise for you as well. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, what will happen is somebody in the band will reach out and say, hey, did you hear that we're playing such and such city on this date or whatever? No, I hadn't, you know, but we're finding out at the same time that the ticket buyers find out, which is kind of interesting. That is interesting. I guess you just get told where you need to be, right? Yeah, and they don't. He he doesn't like to let anybody know ahead of time because he has his reasons for why he wants to wait till this particular date to announce a show. So he doesn't want that getting out. And you know, there's ten people in the band besides him, and that's you know, that's ten chances something could uh, get leaked out <laughs> somewhere. I guess. So he likes for everybody to find out at the same time. Mm, okay fair enough he's got his own methods i guess and they're working so far good for Need him to be yes <laughs> and um so with that being cancelled and everything what did you end up filling your time with last year and up until you know up until now i suppose really from about last march yeah well um one of the things that occupies a lot of my time over the years has been songwriting so and i have a home studio so I spend some time writing and and recording things in my studio. Occasionally, somebody will send me a song to play on for their project. That just gets sent, you know, anymore. The song gets sent, and you just put your part on and, and send it back. And so do that from time to time as well. And um, I play in a, in a band that does all Tom Petty music locally here called the Petty Junkies, me and five other session guys um really just top notch um guys from town in town here and we have a blast doing that so we've been able to play some you know outdoor things here and there where people are spread out and where we whereas we might have played in this venue inside on the stage playing out on outside you know on a patio with people in lawn chairs and so things have changed from that standpoint um but i also something that i do for many years now is the songwriting or performing songwriter solo shows or songwriter in the round kind of shows they call it uh, lots of charity work and so i've been able to to do not as many of those as i usually do but but those things still do come up on my calendar and and i'm always thrilled to get to do some you know charity work that way so but yeah a lot of it's been you know is been spent sitting around um waiting you know to get to go back to normal and just like everybody else so you know even at the times where i'm not scheduled to be in session or writing with somebody or or playing a show or traveling or whatever for garth i tend to gravitate towards picking up an instrument every day you know pick up a guitar or, you know sometimes it might be to try this piece of gear or or to you know or restring an instrument and stretch the strings. And inevitably when I do that, I'll end up reaching for something to record some new ideas. So it's kind of, I stay in that cycle of, you know, picking up an instrument and then something will pop into my head and I'll, you know, purpose to, to put that down so I can use it later when I'm writing. And then at some point I'll do some writing and it kind of just all keeps going in a circle. Mm. Well, you've got enough to keep you busy with. That's great to hear as well, because um, yeah. some people go either way. Some people have said to me, honestly, I don't feel inspired. I feel guilty. I haven't touched my instruments. And some people say they've been really inspired and have really buckled down and maybe written loads of songs. So it's just interesting to see where everyone lands, really, isn't it? Well, and it also, uh, for me, speaking for myself, I've noticed in some ways how this lockdown um, thing that we've been doing isn't all that different from my normal life before this happened. 
believe it or not. It's it hasn't changed that much other than the you know the going out and doing the shows. Um, that's changed drastically, obviously. But I mean, for the rest of what I do, it's pretty much status quo. Mm, okay, a few people have said that actually, especially producers and people with their home studios. Like you said, they will sort yes. of guiltily laugh and say, "Yeah, it's it's not that different. I spend a lot of time on my own, you know, in a room sealed off from the outside world." <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't. It's it's not like uh, well, if you're a songwriter or a writer or a painter or whatever it is that you do creative like that, you're not dependent upon crowds of people to for the creative aspect of that. Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, and just for a little bit of background on you, for any of our listeners uh, tuning in that maybe don't know, so your dad being Jerry Kennedy, who played guitar with Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis and Roger Miller, it's not too surprising that you were also drawn to music as a boy. So I'm guessing yours was a very musical household growing up? Very much so. My mom sang um, from the time she was about 15. She was an artist on Ram Records out of Shreveport, Louisiana. And in fact, that's how she met my dad. Um, she, she went by the name Linda Brannon, which, well, that was her name then before she got married. And then my dad was Jerry Glenn, his middle name. And he was a performer on the Louisiana Hayride. Somebody at some point put them together to do a duet. And they were on stage at some point singing, who wears short shorts, that, that song. And this would have been in the late 50s. They married at 17, had me at 19, and wow. we moved to Nashville. Yeah, we moved here when I was a year old. And so dad came here to sort of put his toe in the water at the request of uh, another fellow from Shreveport, Shelby Singleton, who ended up sort of getting the Mercury Records of Nashville, which was based out of Chicago, but they're going to open a Nashville office. And he was able to hire my dad as like his number two man, which enabled our family to stay in Nashville. And then, of course, my dad would go on to play recording sessions for like you just mentioned he played on elvis you know like good luck charm he's on that song he's on roy orbison's pretty woman oh pretty woman uh bob dylan's blonde on blonde he's a, the electric guitar on stand by your man the dobro on Jeannie c riley's harper valley pta um ringo Starr's second solo record and leroy van dyke just walk on by and on and on and on and on and on he's he's was inducted in 2007 along with six other guys who make up the Nashville A-Team musicians into the Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum, which started here in Nashville in 2007. And um, when Brenda Lee inducted these seven guys, she said they collectively account for over 130,000 recording sessions. So that's quite a high number to try to wrap your head around, the number of records this team of fellows um, were part of. And consequently, I re, you know, I remember growing up riding in the family car on the vacation and it, whether it was a three hour drive or 10 hour drive, my dad was constantly reaching for the volume knob on the radio going, I think I played on this. I think I played on this the whole trip, you know, and all these years later, you know, he's, I still learn, I'm still learning just in the last you know few months records that he played on that I did not know growing up there's just too many to count so yes the house i grew up in was um i was always surrounded by music instruments uh, guitars and amps my first record player arguably was a seaberg 100 jukebox that played 45 vinyl records 
and had an upright piano on the wall adjacent to it. And, and then, of course, he would bring home reel-to-reel tapes of whatever he had produced in the studio that day, fresh out of the studio with Roger Miller or Jerry Lee Lewis or the Statler brothers, Reba McIntyre, and, and all these um, great artists that he produced over the years. So he was a player, producer. He's retired now. And my mom's been gone for, gosh, 20, uh, almost 30 years. It'll be 30 years next month that she's been gone. But she sang and at some point, you know, put the brakes on and and raised the, uh, the family, three sons. And so, yes, all of us in music. Incredible. And how wonderful to have been brought up around that musical culture. Um, must have been wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's been wonderful, yes. And so when when was it when you started to take music a bit seriously there must have been a point where you went from perhaps it was a hobby when you were a boy to you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna do this yeah um I think when I was in the third grade so I'm about you know nine ten years old going somewhere in there we had moved away from our home in Gillisville where on that dead-end street we lived on there was a boy in every house and we all had our bicycle gangs and played kill the man with the football and all this stuff. And we moved away um, in the middle of my third grade year. Well, we went back that following summer to visit all the kids on the, on the dead end circle. And the guy lived across the street from me, Scott Culberson, his father was an Eastern airlines pilot. And when we went back to visit, um, Scott was getting guitar lessons. His dad was helping him get lessons. So that kind of kind of made me mad and, but it motivated me at the same time. Cause I thought, well, wait a minute, my father is a guitar player. I should be playing the guitar. And so that was one of the pivotal moments for me. And then if you flash forward to when I'm uh, maybe a, a year or so later, I've got the chord book, you know, Mel Bay fun with the guitar, which I got from my cousin, Randy down in Shreveport. And so I started learning some chords out of the book, but still was just sort of halfway serious about it until my father gave me an, a Fender Telecaster for Christmas when I was 15 years old. That was sort of the no looking back moment for me that just changed my life. And and uh, I've not done anything else since um, getting that guitar. I've never worked outside of being a musician or you know ultimately a songwriter and producer as well, but... Uh, all I wanted to be from the time I was probably about six years old was to do what my dad did. I just, you know, I wanted to do what my dad does. And then you get a little older and, and start looking at the the discography and all the things that my dad was a part of. And I started asking myself, whoa, you know, do I really want to try to step into those shoes? And But I look back over my shoulder all these years later and I see, you know, there's Garth Brooks, Eric Clapton, Bonnie Raitt, Peter Frampton, Ricky Skaggs, and all these people that are sort of like, this is our generation of Elvis and Orbison. And so I've been very blessed um, to have been able to do what I've, you know, been allowed to to be a part of. Mm, well, it certainly worked out for you, hasn't it? So I'm glad that you got that guitar all those years ago, <laughs> went on from I, there. Yes, amen to that. I still have it. <laughs> do you? Mm-hmm. Oh, how incredible. Where do you keep it? Um, it's about 30 feet from me right now. <laughs> <Is it? laughs> uh, yeah, where I keep my guitars, it's, it's, um, it ain't going nowhere. No, nor should it. 
Um, yeah. And um, I know you must get asked this a lot, but perhaps you'll just humour me. So um, you co-wrote Change the World, which of course was recorded by Eric Clapton and it was a huge hit and it's still played loads to this day, of course. So, um, And you and the other co-writers, you received a Grammy Award for Song of the Year for this song. So yes. this is, you know, of course, an incredible achievement. So when you wrote this song, what are your memories of that time? Did you have a feeling it would go on to do the things that it did? Wayne Kirkpatrick and I were in the studio with Tommy Sims playing bass and Chris McHugh playing drums. And we were trying to do the get the proverbial record deal. We had a label in New York that was entertaining us for about a year. They kept saying to us with the songs we were recording, go back and give us a pop song. We can get you an alternative hit out of this batch of songs, but go go back and record something and like a pop hit so we can put another zero behind the numbers, I remember him saying. Um, <clears throat> and so that basically was just an attempt to see if we couldn't appease that guy from the label in New York. And the song idea was presented to me and Wayne from Tommy on one of the, or the first session where we recorded these four other songs. And just on some downtime, Tommy said to Wayne and myself, hey, is this idea something this group could do? And so he started playing the chord changes for the that main riff for Change the World. And then he even had a title. He thought it should be called Change the World. And in retrospect, he probably was thinking of it more of like a, as a social consciousness kind of idea, you know, hands across the studio, change, we can change the world. And, and so at some point, Wayne would ask Tommy to just record that little riff and put it on a tape. And then he would start working on some lyrics. And then he would get to a certain point where he stopped. And then I would ask, hey, where, how far did you get with that? And then I would finish his lyrics and finish the music. And Tommy and I would record the demo almost a year after the session where he had first played us that idea. So what's interesting about that song is none of the three of us were ever together when each of us wrote the parts we wrote. It was all done separately over the course of a year. So like a baton being passed in a relay, right? So it's, it was a year long process. Tommy and I did the demo and then it was another four years before Clapton has the song out on the radio uh, and it's a single from the soundtrack for the movie Phenomenon and then the Grammys and all that happened with that. Clapton won best pop male vocal performance and he and Babyface also won record of the year that night and we won first song of the year. Wow, incredible memories. And, of course, you also won a Grammy for Best Pop Instrumental Album of 2006 for Peter Frampton's Fingerprints. So is it surreal when you see all of your hard work pay off like this by getting this kind of acknowledgement? Yes, but I tell you what's even more surreal to me is when I'm sitting on stage and I look to my left in the case of when we were doing the two-man acoustic shows called Acoustic Raw, Peter Frampton sitting there. Now, you got to remember, I'm a guy that when I was a sophomore in high school and the live album came out, it stormed. I mean, I first, I'm admitting that I never really knew who Peter Frampton was until that live album came out. Now, for the entire year that I'm in school that year as a sophomore, there was a fellow named Mark Vaughn. Every time we passed each other for the year long uh, that that album was out, we would look at each other. One of us would do it 
thank you. You know, so we, we would imitate Peter Frampton at the end of every, all the songs on the record. So to say that this was, you know, a, a little bit of a cultural phenomenon during that time is, I can't stress how, <laughs> how much it was. And then some years, all these years would go by and somebody would decide that Peter and I should write together. And so that was a blessing for me. I, I've joked when I actually got to induct him. He has a, a star on the Walk of Fame down in Nashville, and he asked me to induct him, which I thought was so sweet of him. And I, but when I when I gave the induction speech, I said, you know, somebody decided to try to put us together. I said, if you'll look at his arms, you'll probably see twist marks where they kind of twisted his arm to get him to work with me. They had to tell him my whole life story talk to him about change the world and who his dad is and all. And they're telling him my whole life story to get him. So if you look at my arm, there's pinch marks. There's, you know, where I've pinched myself to see if this is really happening, you know, because all they had to do to me was come and say, do you want to write with Peter? Yes. You know, that's all they had to say. And so we've been, he and I have been working together now for 21 years and it's just been such a thrill. I, yeah, it's, it truly is a thing where I pinch myself and go, how did this happen to me that I'm getting to sit beside this guy, participate in his music and be like a go-to person for him when it comes time to write or, you know, do the two man acoustic tour or whatever. He kind of keeps coming back to me, thankfully over the years and wants me, you know, at his side for a lot of very cool things. Well, you know, there are other artists that I would say, equal that you know obviously garth and uh, a guy named ricky skaggs who is arguably the best bluegrass country artist i've ever seen in my lifetime and so i've gotten to do a lot of work with him um over the years as well just uh, yeah i'm i'm so blessed that i've been able to join you know and participate in the music you know the lives of these these incredible artists bonnie Raitt keeps coming back for songs with each of her projects ever since um well she was sitting on the front row at the grammys that night right and then uh, maybe a couple months later we got a call from somebody representing her asking if we would write a song for her i mean you go from writing a song trying to figure out how to get to an artist like that to them calling you and asking for a song how does that happen but <laughs> or, you know it's been a blessing no, incredible yeah you mentioned there so obviously you've written and produced for a bunch of artists bonnie Raitt, obviously being one of them and as you mentioned peter frampton garth brooks faith hill many many more um mm -hmm. how do you typically divide your time do you still write and produce now or do you now do one more than the other you know the great thing about and i encourage people who write songs i, I say this is what's great about being a songwriter if you are a songwriter by virtue of the fact that you are writing a song, it would inevitably allow you to do everything else you know how to do. Okay, so I write a song. Well, now I got to write, you know, I got to do a demo for the song. So I play, I sing, I play, I play bass. I'll, you know, do whatever I, every, everything I know how to do, I will do in on that demo. And then you, the song gets pitched and somebody like Ricky Skaggs hears it and says, I'm doing this song, but I, I'm going to need you to come produce the album with me. What? You know? Okay. So he likes the demo and what I've done in the direction enough to where now he wants to dip into this other thing I know how to do. So sometimes 
those things happen. Uh, Winona wants me to come sing the, the background vocals that I did on the demo. So I'm a singer for her, you know. Um, and then, of course, the guitar thing happens the same way. Um, you know, I, I wrote a song for Bruce Hornsby and Ricky Skaggs, this duet record they did. And I had done the demo. I had played my dad's dobro, which is the one he played on Harbor Valley PTA and tons of Roger Miller, Statler Brothers records on and on. But I had to go get the Dobro out of the Musicians Hall of Fame because it was behind glass down there. Ever since he got inducted, they wanted that instrument down there. Oh, of course. So I go grab the instrument and take it because Ricky Skagg says, can you bring your dad's Dobro out here? So I'm thinking he wants to play it on the song I wrote for him and Bruce Hornsby. Well, and I get there. He goes, no, son, I want you to play it. I want you to do what you did on the demo. So that's, you know... If I focus on songwriting, but I'm doing all these other things, you know, as a result, and then sometimes those are maybe the things I get called for. It's like, well, we don't, we didn't want to use the song, but we'd like for you to come play on the record. I mean, those things are nice little surprises when they happen, but, you know, it's, it's just from, you know, focusing on and, and honing your, your craft at every aspect of it that you might see some opportunities arise. Mm. And as you've written so many successful and well-known songs, I'm just curious about what's worked for you. Because some people say, you know, they sit down, they block out time, I'm going to write a song now. And some people like Paul McCartney wake up with the song in their head. So <laughs> which which would you say you fall under or is it a bit of both? It's It's all over the place. I mean, typically the greater percentage of songs I write will have a music, a melody, a chord progression first before a lyric. If I write a lyric first it's hard for me not to look at that page and just see a poem and think, well, that should just stay that way. Um, but I have done it. I just prefer to do it the other way. But I, I woke up at 3.30 in the morning two nights ago and wrote a lyric down that I woke up thinking about. So, I mean, I've experienced that as well. I've also experienced um, thinking that I was going to capture something out of a dream and actually did it one time. I was dreaming a song. I wrote, woke up, had a legal pad by my bedside. I wrote the lyrics down and went back to sleep and woke up the next morning to read it. And it was total gibberish. <laughs> I mean, it was, it was just complete nonsensical garbage. So, uh, I, but I mean, I, you know, most of the time, though, what I do, Alice, is I'll put a, you know, like I said, I'll pick up a guitar and just start messing around with it and want to hear the sound of that amplifier and this guitar, whatever is the reason for doing it. But that often will have me reaching for my phone usually is where I capture ideas um, these days. And just I'll put this chord progression down, maybe hum the melody or whatever. And then so I have a little stockpile of ideas and things that I'll go and mine from time to time when it's, you know, when I think I'm, I've got a song idea or, or when I'm, you know, maybe scheduled to write with somebody because they always start the writing sessions with what do you have? Well, what do you have? You know, mm. so I, I always try to have when it comes to those writing sessions. And and then, you know, sometimes a project will be presented to me. Uh, I've been asked along with Ricky Skaggs if I would do music for a like a there's a film that's in the works and so, I, you know, things like that, I love to have those put in front of me because that sort of gives me a deadline and the parameters of what it is I'm writing. Sometimes that makes it a lot easier for me. Um, but, I mean, it's it's all over the place. There's no set, 
you know, one way um, when it comes to just the process of writing. Mm, no rhyme or reason. Just happens how it happens, I guess, depending on what Well, no, no, no rhyme or reason until there's rhyme and reason. You know what I mean? Yes, there isn't until there is so <laughs> and how are you handling session work with the way things are at the moment or is it like you say not that different because you might be doing things remotely anyhow well it's been a while since i've been a musician that will go into down in nashville and go into a studio and sit down and track with the players um it's been a little while since I've done that anyway. So mostly these days when somebody wants me to play on something, they'll either walk into my studio with the song in their pocket on a little thumb drive, or I get sent the files, you know, Dropbox to my studio or whatever and open up the session, load it up and put my parts on and then send it back the same way. So there's that had already been occurring before all this lockdown stuff. So again, it didn't seem like, um, the method of operation was being upset too terribly much when it came when it comes to uh, playing sessions. So, uh, but you know, I I don't I've, I've heard from other musicians talking about how difficult it is to go into the studio and do tracking sessions where all the musicians are sitting there. I did do some of that last year for Garth because he needed a track for this award show or where he was going to go and sing and this medley. So we, we went to the studio maybe a few times last year to like do some tracks for him and everybody's wearing masks and spread out all over the place. Fortunately, the studio had ample room that everybody could spread out. And, and, uh, and then there were a couple of times I remember last year where each musician or singer would come in one at a time, do their thing, leave. They, I mean, I, I say hose the place down, but whatever that entails these days. And, <laughs> and, and and before the next person comes in, so they get a fresh start. And then so they would do that for everybody coming in over the course of a couple of days. So I know they did that as well. Yeah, things have changed. But for me out here in my my little world, it's it's not changed that much. Just the operation, how we how I do it. Mm, OK, yeah, that makes sense. Um and uh, on to guitars for, for a bit, which I know obviously you touched on earlier with your first ever guitar that you, you know you've still got. So I saw that you love the quote, um, God doesn't call the equipped, God equips the called. Because um, right. the first instruments you touched and played were the ones your dad used naturally. So I'm mm-hmm. guessing you've got quite an enviable collection of guitars. Is that right to say? Yeah. And, you know, over the years uh, when I started getting these guitars I never got them to hang them up and or put them in uh, behind glass or or anything I always thought of them as the working tools you know and I I learned that basically from the generation ahead of me the Nashville players my father guys like Jerry Reed you know I would ask Jerry Reed uh hey what you know what guitar did you play on Amos Moses and he would fire back I don't know son it was a piece of wood I mean and so that generation they thought of all those things as tools. And I, I sort of figured out after a while that asking somebody like my father, you know, what amplifier did you use on Pretty Woman? And he doesn't know. He said whatever was in the studio. But I, I figured it out after a while that it would be like asking, you know, somebody, uh, your dad, hey, dad, what hammer did you use on that bonus room in that house in such and such a neighborhood when it was mm-hmm. the house was being built? I mean, I don't know. It was a hammer, you know. Yeah, it was that. So, yeah, so there was. There's a lot of, um, you know, 
these are working tools. But having said that, though, yes, I've over the last, especially over the last maybe 20 years, I've gotten some really, really great guitars. And and again, it's like that quote you started this uh, off with about being equipped. You know, if if somebody walks up to me and says, I know a lady in Norfolk, Nebraska, who's got a room full of old guitars and amplifiers that she's tried to find a buyer for over the years, would you be interested? And I ended up making this drive there and bringing home 11 amplifiers and 10 guitars just on this one trip. Wow. And and the and some of the guitars that were in her basement which had belonged to her brother who had passed away so this whole thing is like a story to me and uh, and again it's just this blessing that just kind of fell out of the sky into my lap orchestrated by people other than myself i had nothing to do with seeking this out you know it's it kind of sought me out and found a home with me so things like that are very special to me um but yes the guitars that were in that and, you know, just some the ways I've found some other guitars, you know, some, uh, a story that looked like it was going to be horrible that ended up being uh, a dream, you know, I mean, just the best was how I found the 1959 um, Les Paul standard that used to belong to John Sebastian, the one he used on all the love and spoonful records. Right. When I bought that guitar, my father reminded me of how crazy I was over Nashville cats when I was six years old. And so here I am all these years later and have that guitar that's on that record and all their hits. Of Do you believe in magic summer in the city daydream? All, I mean, just a wonderful catalog of music from, from John Sebastian and love and spoonful. But I mean, I have that guitar, which also led to Gibson custom shop doing what they call the collector's choice series of guitars where they made replicas of existing guitars and they did a run of guitars that were replicas of this John Sebastian formerly owned by John Sebastian Les Paul called the spoonful burst. So we've done that with Gibson, uh, my father's 335, which is a 61 1961 ES 335 that he used on all those records I mentioned earlier. Um, Gibson Custom Shop also did a replica of that guitar recently. So it's it's fun. Um, I, I look at those things as they're, they're certainly are like art, you know, but they're also this functioning, you know, they have a function to them. And that's sort of the first and foremost thing that's on my mind is, is how does it play? How does it sound, you know? Um, but I don't get too caught up in music gear as far as you know being sort of nerdy about it or anything um you know there's plenty of publications out there that will will say to you you know have you found your signature tone you know and i always think well the beatles told jeff emmerich every time they got ready to record a guitar solo that it can't sound like anything they've ever done before so i thought well they're not looking for their signature tone they're looking for what they haven't done yet mm-hmm each time. And then I also had a publication ask me recently, what do you plug into to get the best sound in the studio? And I said, you're not going to like my answer, but it's a good song. Because if you think about it, if you, if somebody like Roy Orbison walks into the studio and here's pretty woman, that little riff, you know, 
the world is not going to care whether that's an Ampeg or a Fender amp or whatever it is. It's that song is going to be greater than anything you're holding. Case in point, I did play in a Beatles cover band too for several years with some of the guys in Frampton's band and, and uh, Adrian Ballou and uh, the guy played bass for Adrian Ballou. Great musicians. And for all the, the care and, and time you spend thinking what, guitar rig should I take to do this set of music by that band the minute you play the first song count the first song off in the downbeat from there for the next two hours you don't think about what you're holding or what the amp is behind you or what pedal boards on the floor in front of you it's those songs and you just get lost in that and you forget about the gear so and I know gear plays a critical you know part of everything because it has to inspire you for you to you know do your best I'm not discounting that but i am saying i'm a song guy first Mm, okay and uh based on what you've just said i won't ask you to go too in depth about this side but i did just want to ask you about um your use of celestian because i know you have been using those for a while i know you said just now you're not super you know um into maybe what it is that you use you just know that it needs to sound good but could you tell me a little bit about um when you started using celestian and um that side of things yeah, I would say probably, again, about 20 years ago um, would have been the first time I had an experience where I even bothered to kind of look into what's going on with speakers in an amplifier. How much does this play into the end result of what I'm hearing? And that's when I bought a 1960 Fender Tweed Deluxe amp from a vintage guitar show. And I got the amp home and plugged into it, and it sounded great, but I could tell that the speaker had a problem. So the original speaker in there, the old Jensen, was something wrong with it. And so my friends, and in particular Peter Frampton, you know, were encouraging me, you got to get it reconed. So I sent it to a guy local here in Nashville named Sammy to recone the speaker. Well, in the period of time while I was waiting for that, Peter had said to me, you should put a vintage 30 in, in the amp, you know, and see what you think. So I, I got this Celestian vintage 30 and put in the amplifier. And for me, it was, oh my gosh, it, it changed this amp into this like little mean monster of a amplifier. Like it's a baby Marshall all of a sudden. And so I left that speaker in there for years um, because it sounded so great. So that was probably my first, you know, foray into, you know, changing a speaker in an amplifier. You know, before that, I probably just whatever's in there is supposed to be in there, you know. So that was the first time I um, realized, you know, that changing a speaker could change the sound of the amplifier so much. But I had an amplifier already at this point that had Celestians in it. And that was my matchless uh, HC30 that I bought in 1992. That amp has a a 25 watt and a 30 watt. So I think it's like the green bag paired with like a vintage 30, but matchless does some quote unquote, you know, I don't if it's doping speakers or they do something to wor- to warrant them putting the matchless decal on the back of the speaker, but they're Celestians, right? So um, that amplifier, since I bought it in 1992, has been my go-to 
over the years. So, you know, for 29 years now, I would say that's on easily 90% of the recordings I've played on since buying it. It's just, it works on everything. And so, so there's an amp. That's the first time I had an amp that had selection speakers in it stock that came that way. Um, and then most recently, I would say uh, uh, a vast improvement and delight to my soul was was getting a pair of the Red Ruby speakers put in an old 1962 piggyback basement rig. And there again, I had this wonderful amplifier, but I could tell the speakers were had seen their had better days. And so I, I got a pair of, um, of the Ruby Reds and put in there. And the first time I put a microphone on that cabinet, I fell in love. I, it was a love at first hearing, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it just sounded like, well, it just sounded glorious to me, to my ears. And so that was a great find um, for, uh, Sorry. yeah. What, did, what, what made you go for the Ruby speakers then? Um, were, were you advised by someone at Celestian? Were you just trying yes. something new? John, John Pace. Oh, John, yeah. Yeah, um, I asked him for some counsel on that, and he recommended those, and he was right. What particular tone were you after when you asked him um, what you were looking for that led him to well, suggest those ones? I, I didn't want something that would reinvent the 62 basement because that's a great amplifier and you know i've been to see brian setzer you know a couple times in the last year before ramping up to this this event you know wanting to find some speakers for this this amplifier and he uses that kind of a rig on stage and so sitting at the ryman auditorium and just being inspired by the guitar sound and and uh thinking well you know i need to i need to do something for this old basement amp because it'd be worth having it as a uh, one of the options in the studio, but I can't use it with the stock speaker. So that's what, co- you know, caused me to call John in the first place. Mm, okay. And I, and I said, I, you know, I want something that doesn't like reroute this amp, you know, what it was designed to be, but, and I wanted to be able to just plug a guitar into it, not, um, you know, I, it, I wanted to plug a guitar straight into the amp and put a mic on it. And that's how I like to do things in the studio, not put a bunch of stuff before the amplifier. Again, I want to hear this 62 basement the way it's supposed to sound. And it just, I, the first time I put a microphone on it in the studio and I plugged an old Telecaster into it, it just was this beautiful guitar tone. Um, I would I would say it was approaching like a Mark Knopfler kind of sound, which I love. So it more than you know was satisfying to me the, the choice of those speakers. John he uh, advised me well with that speaker. Yeah, and it's nice to hear that you know you've been using them for so many years, and then still they can surprise you by you know you trying something new with the Ruby speakers. Like you said, they're still surprising you. Well, it's because. Celestian doesn't stop thinking. I mean, I can't stop thinking with what I do. I have to keep thinking of what's next. And, you know, is there something better? You know, can I do this better? Can I, should I rewrite that verse? You know, I mean, I have to sort of continue that process. And thankfully there are people out there that are, you know, have, you know, put that blank screen or paper or whatever it is in front of them every day and think it's like the Beatles said, you know, what haven't we done yet? 
what can we do that hasn't been done yet? And, and so I am fascinated by people who do that. You know, the fact that I can call a John Pace at Celestian and have him know this stuff, know what it is, listen to me and interpret what it is I'm looking for and, and be able to suggest something like that. And then the payoff being what it was for me was like, that's a beautiful thing that you wish could happen all the time. But, um, it's, it's rare, but it's, it was, a, like I said, just the most wonderful um, result. Mm, sounds like you've got a great working relationship there. So that's uh, yeah. incredible to have a resource like John, like you say, that you know you can just sort of voice an idea to and he can know exactly what will suit you. That's incredible. Yes, I'm fortunate to uh, have met him. Mm, absolutely. And um, so other than, you know, hoping and waiting for when the Garth Brooks tour can begin again, so I'm touching wood for you and for everyone in the uh, music industry out there. So are you working on any other projects that you're happy to share about at the moment or that you've got coming up later this year? Well, I mentioned about the Petty Junkies and doing the Tom Petty music. Uh, that little band that we do has uh, recorded 10 of the songs and we're in the mixing stages of those to have, you know, for when we go back out and do the gigs. Um, and again, it was just something that was like, we all have our little uh, recording studio setups and some of us have actual studios that where you can come and do tracking. And so it was just easy for us to, to be able to, Hey, why don't we knock this out? And it's been so much fun to do that. Um, but I mean, you know, just the writing thing I've, I've, I've kind of maintained doing a little bit of that. I don't do tons of that anymore. Um, you know, the world has kind of quit buying music. So the whole idea and concept of doing nine to five writing and, you know, having somebody go out and pitch songs sort of went away some years back for me. I prefer to write just when I feel like it, or if somebody puts that project in front of me and, you know, like Peter's, you know, if Peter Frampton calls me and wants to write something, the answer is absolutely. Bonnie Raitt needs a song. Yes. You know, Ricky Skaggs is, you know, is going to do this movie thing uh, with me. So we're working on music for that. And, and so projects like that project oriented writing for me, I, I will do all day, every day, but the whole idea of just writing songs to, have a pile of songs for somebody to go out and pitch. It doesn't appeal to me so much anymore. Mm. Um, and then of course there's the occasional, you know, I'll get a call from my publisher friend, Bobby Reimer, for example. And Hey, there's this new young writer that I really believe in. And would you be interested in getting with them? So sometimes that'll happen. Um, you know, I've, I find myself in that role of being sort of a mentor in recent years with students at Belmont university here in Nashville. And, and again, like if Bobby calls and has a writer, he wants me to work with. Sometimes uh, I'll do that just because it's paying it forward, you know? Um, and it's a great experience for me too. I learned something working with somebody new and, you know, it's like, what are the, what are the kids doing now? You know, mm -hmm. so I'll, I'll get to experience that, but, but I, I'm just, you know, uh, like I said earlier, I'd, I'd still sort of on the day-to-day -day routine kind of things haven't changed much for me. I still, I love to put a guitar up on the bench and change the strings on it. It's sort of like therapy, you know. Um, I enjoy spending time holding the instruments and, and mm. having, having them in my hands and 
it's just something I gravitate towards every day. And then sometimes there is a, there's some fruit that's produced as a result. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, Gordon, I think that is a wonderful note to end on, actually, and um, very poetic. And I just want to thank you for taking the time to join us today on this podcast. We really appreciate it. And I've loved talking to you and hearing about your career so far. It's been fascinating. Well, Alice, I'm so grateful to you for wanting to spend the time with me, and I hope to get to meet you face-to-face someday. I know. Wouldn't that be something? Do you remember the days? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so, so now you can just send somebody around with a mask on and say it's you, but I hope to actually get to meet you someday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could do that. I feel like yeah. you're a little bit out of my way at the moment being in Nashville, yeah. but um, we can work something out. <laughs> if, you're, if you're in the neighborhood, yes. I very much hope for you one day. It's on my list. I can't believe I've never been. Oh, well then, my gosh, please make it known if you do come here. Oh, I absolutely will. And I hope you don't regret saying that, Gordon. (laughs) No, no, you'll have to go. Listen, you'll have to go to the Musicians Hall of Fame. Yes. I can be your tour guide. Oh, I'm going to take you up on that. Okay, we'll discuss this off the air then. All right, Gordon. (laughs) All right. Thank Thank you so much. Have an amazing day. You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.